Well, Father, help us to do that. That sounds kind of scary a little bit, uh, but uh, we know that you will protect us, that no one will kill us if we give away a New Testament. (laughs) So help us, though, to get over our fears and to step out and make a difference, get your word into the lives of people. Uh, We pray that you would get your word into our lives today, that you would speak to us from your word. You'd help us to understand your grand plan and, and how it ends, how the, it's complete as we look at Revelation 22. So teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. Today we're looking at the original plan of the Garden of Eden, only better, okay? The meta story of God, the grand plan of God is found in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 22 frame God's grand plan. Between the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, and the new Jerusalem that we've been looking at in chapter 21 and 22, between these uh, we see portrayed in our passage, uh, chapter 22, 1 through 5, the new Jerusalem as the new Garden of Eden. So that's what we're going to see how it is uh, brought about. And so you see from the garden to the garden, that's God's grand plan. Uh, The Bible was written by over 40 authors. It was written over a time period of about 1,500 years. It was written in three different languages, written on three different continents. I didn't say countries. I said continents. Written by people ranging from farmers and uh, butlers uh, to kings and so forth. So vast array, completely uh, amazing how this, all of these people and so forth put together a book that really reads as one book with one grand plan. And it is because the Bible was written by one author, and that's God. And the one author with the one plan that ends with the original plan of the Garden of Eden, only better. Let's look at it. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever ever. Does that sound good? Well, let me read something from Desmond Alexander's book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem. And uh, he says, 
Yet the Bible begins with a similar picture. Genesis opens by recounting how God creates an earth into which he places a human couple, Adam and Eve. This first earth, as I shall argue later, is designed to be a divine residence. For here, God intends to coexist with people. However, the divine plan for this first earth is soon disrupted when the human couple, due to their disobedience, are driven from God's presence. The complex story that follows centers on how the earth can once more become a dwelling place shared by God and humanity. And that's what we see in the end here. It's not too good to be true because it is true. And it's because God has always had this plan. That's what we see in our passage. So let's take a look at it. Verses 1 through 3a, we see that we receive real life. It talks about the river of life and the tree of life, and it's bringing out this idea of real life. We receive real life. Now, clearly, in the mentioning of this river and this tree, he's going back to Genesis again. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 through 14 to see how the beginning and ending of the Bible fits together. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. And then it goes on and it talks about all these, you know, how the river, you know, becomes, you know, these four different rivers and so forth. But notice, you have the garden, you have the tree of life, you have the river. That's what we see at the end as well, this idea. And the river... And the tree, uh, they were prophesied in Ezekiel, kind of about in the middle of the Bible, right? So we got the beginning, we got the end, now let's look at the middle. Look at Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. Ezekiel talks about a great temple, and then he speaks of this taking place. Ezekiel 47, verse 1 through 12. Now notice how it fits our passage in Revelation, okay? He says, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? I always thought that was kind of a funny question. 
Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En Eglium. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. See how all this ties in. This river coming from the temple, well, we've already seen from from the, our passage and from chapter 21, that, the, that God is the temple at the end. And the river, as we see in our passage, flows from his throne. So we see, though, that the river and the trees were prophesied in Ezekiel 47. Now, when you think of these things, uh, we put it all together, and we can see that, first of all, the river transforms everything. Uh, if you noticed... Uh, wherever it went, according to Ezekiel, it just made everything live, alive. It transformed everything. We see in our passage, chapter 22, this river water of life is as clear as crystal. So it's pure water. There's no pollution, absolutely perfect. I remember one time in Florida, we went and did one of those glass-bottom boat things, you know, where in a really crystal clear uh, it was a spring, I believe, and you could you know you could just see way down and see all the fish, you know, and like and, and you know the water like the ultimate paradise for divers and when they want to go and they see the fish. You ever done that, anybody? That's it, yeah. Um, that's okay. That's what this is going to be like. Just beautiful, perfect, crystal clear, no pollution, a divers' paradise. The river transforms everything. And this life, it's a tree of life and the river of life. It's abundant life. But it's an abundant life that includes joyous work. And we've already seen that previously. But remember, Adam and Eve originally put in the garden, they worked. They tilled the land. They enjoyed what they were doing, though. So it was joyous work before the curse came and made work hard, okay? They enjoyed their work, but there's going to be work. We saw in Ezekiel, fishermen. Yes, we get to fish. Okay. You know, one of my dream jobs, when I was young, uh, when I was a... Uh, uh, I lived down in Rochester, and every year we'd go up to Leech Lake to go uh, fishing for opening day. And, and I remember my dream job was to own a resort on Leech Lake and just fish every day. Wouldn't that be fun? You know what I mean? This is a, well, hey, that might be your calling, okay? So there's, but, but here we see that this abundant life, this life is, includes joyous work and life. This life is true happiness. 
Look at Psalm 46, 4, another passage that brings out this idea of this river. And uh, in Psalm 42, 46, sorry, I'm looking at it saying, wow, that looks like a good verse. 46, verse 4, it says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the holy place where the Most High dwells. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Life is, this abundant life is happiness. Uh, The trees are for our enjoyment. All the different fruits we saw in Ezekiel, it talked about that. Every month, you know, the fruit comes and and the trees are for our enjoyment, but also even for our healing. In uh, back in Alexander's book, he says, in keeping with its designation, the tree of life produces fruit that gives immortality. After betraying God, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden in order to ensure that they cannot eat from the tree and live forever. Revelation 22 underlines the tree's life-giving power by describing how it produces 12 kinds of fruit every month. The context implies that the tree's leaves renew those who eat them. The concept of rejuvenation predates cosmetic companies. God patented it when he created the tree of life. No one will grow frail by becoming old in the new Jerusalem. Citizens of the new earth will experience and enjoy both wholeness of body and longevity of life. They will have a quality of life unrestricted by disability or disease. To live in the new Jerusalem is to experience life in all its fullness and vitality. It is to live as one has never lived before. It is to be in the prime of life for eternity, forever. And so this this is what we're to think of as we see this river and these trees. And real life is eternal life. As we walk through the Bible, as we see the mentioning of life and true life and real life, we see the mention of eternal life. And I want you to turn to John 3.16. I know you probably, many of you have it memorized, and it is certainly the most famous verse in the Bible, but we need to look at it. So turn in your Bibles and look at this. Genesis 3, verse 16. John. Okay. Need another cup of coffee. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life. That's why Jesus came, to die on the cross so that we could have eternal life. Now, the flip side of this, we need to look at verse 36. He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, has it already. When you are born again, when you truly trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive eternal life right then and there, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Look at chapter 4, 
verse 14. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. He says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then look at chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus goes on to say, he says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but is crossed over from death to life. Will not be judged. That's good news. (laughs) Okay? That we are completely forgiven of all of our sins. According to this, we receive this eternal life. Now, as we see it, it's completed in chapter 22, Revelation, okay? So, but it's inaugurated now. When you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus and him alone for your salvation, the Bible says that you are born again, you become a new creature, and you receive this eternal life. You have eternal life. So it begins now, but we fully experience it here, chapter 22. That's when it's going to be completely and totally and fully experienced. But we have it now, this eternal life. It's absolutely critical that we make sure that we have it now so that we can experience the fullness of it then as well, okay? So real life is eternal life. Now back to our passage, okay? So he says, uh, the River clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the street. On each side you have the tree of life bearing its crops and for the healing of the nations. And then look at verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. There will be no more curse. Now, Obviously, this is hearkening back to Genesis as well. Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and God pronounced the curse on, on Eve and then on Adam and cursed the ground. And when we see this world the way it is now, it's because of the curse. You see, the reason why there's suffering in the world, the reason why there's so much junk, the reason why we see the beauty, but we also see the distortion, the reason why we have so much pain and evil and so forth going on is because of the curse on this world. Because this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is because of sin that's wrecked the world. Right now, the world is wrecked but it's going to get fixed, okay? And that's what we're seeing. So this is where we long for. People who who live for now, they're going to be disillusioned eventually. They're going to be messed up. There's so many people because all their thoughts are now and something bad happens to them. Oh, what's wrong, God? He's a mean God and all those kinds of things. Listen, people, this world is wrecked because of sin, because of the curse, But God in his goodness has provided a way out from this curse. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. This is absolutely dumbfoundingly amazing. I just made a new word there. Turned it into an adverb. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. 
For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, first, we need to understand this part first, okay? Anybody relying on works in any way, shape, or fashion for their salvation, according to this verse, means you're under the curse of the law, and which means you have to obey it completely, otherwise you won't go to heaven, okay? And nobody obeys it completely, do they? That's why you cannot, in your gospel, add works in any way, shape, or form. The moment you add that to the gospel equation, it becomes a false gospel. And here he makes it crystal clear. Look at verse 11. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. It has to be by grace alone, through faith alone. Otherwise, it's a false gospel, according to Paul. He then says, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Jesus, dying on the cross, became a curse for us. He took the curse upon himself. He experienced the very wrath of God instead of us as our substitute. This is the good news of this thing. We deserve to pay the penalty for our sins, but Jesus took the curse for us, became a curse so that we could be delivered from the curse. He goes on to say he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we receive this wonderful time because we have eternal life in Revelation 22 where there will no longer be any more curse. Genesis 3 is reversed It's undone forever. That's good news, okay? So we receive real life, and we serve God in a relationship of love. Look back at Revelation 22, verse 3b. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Now, here we see that we serve God in a relationship of love. God is on the throne, right? The throne of God, but it's God and the Lamb are on the throne, and his servants, and we serve with him. So God is on the throne, and we worship or serve God. Now, the reason why I say worship slash serve God, the Greek word here is letruo, okay? Now, there are two Greek words, prominent main words for worship, 
And it's proskuneo, that's what we usually use for bowing down to the Lord, singing praises to the Lord. But there also, the Greek word latruo is used for worship, but it's also used for service. It's used for the service of the priests as they serve to worship God as well. In fact, it's the Greek word, the translation of the Hebrew word back in Genesis for Adam when it says Adam worked the land... Abad, in the Hebrew, it says, he latruo, the land. It's a, it's, so our work that we do for God is an aspect of worship. So it's worshipful work or workful worship. Nah, but you know what I'm saying, okay? Uh, Romans 12 talks about that. It says, you know, in, in light of this, therefore, okay, in light of, Romans 1 through 11, all that great doctrine. In light of that, present your bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord, which is your reasonable act of service, I think is how the New American Standard translates it. NIV says, which is your um, act of worship. Because they're both right. It's worshipful service, and that's what we're to understand. And this is how we're to serve God in worshipful service. By the way, we were created to worshipfully serve God. He has, even now, a plan for every single person in this room. He has a plan that only you can fulfill. And the moment you even start to think, oh, I'm not very important, you're wrong. You are very important. God has a plan for each and every one of us. In fact, we will always be incomplete, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled apart from finding that plan, that calling on our life. God has made each of us unique. Uh, That's as Daniel brought up in your your prayer as far as the body of Christ. Uh, We are actually going to be doing a class on January 27th from 9 in the morning, it's a Saturday, 9 in the morning until 1, to help people discover their spiritual gifts and their passion of ministry and how that all fits to find out how can I serve in the church and at home, okay? So how has God made me so that I will be both fruitful, and fulfilled. Okay, so, so we're going to be doing that. So sign up for that. I need you to, I need you to sign up for it too because we need to know how many people are coming. But, uh, but that's January 27th, end of the month. Okay, so we worship, serve God, and it will be a new level of intimacy with God. He says they will see his face and his name will be there on their foreheads. This level of relationship is going to be face-to-face with God himself. Now, it's kind of interesting when you watch this relationship that God created us for. Because as you look in the Old Testament, God first gives Abraham his name. And then he says, and he gives the people of Israel his name, Yahweh. He says, I don't want you to just call me God generic. Elohim or El, that's the generic term for God. I want you to know my personal name, Yahweh. 
I want to have that kind of relationship with you. But then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus takes it a major step forward. He says, now I want you to call God Father. I want you to have this kind of relationship with him, the intimacy of being adopted into the family where God is your dad. I want that for you. So when you pray now, say, our Father who art in heaven. And so so it's moved from knowing his personal name, Yahweh, to this more personal Father and here to even more personal face-to-face relationship with God himself. Completely different from the Koran, by the way. Okay, if you've ever read the Koran, it says nothing, zero, about any kind of relationship with God. We're his slaves, and that's it. Okay, in fact, they expect us to believe that Old Testament, you went with this personal name, Yahweh, New Testament, even more personal, Father, to Quran, Allah, generic name for God, again. It's digression, not progression, isn't it? So scrap that one. That's not the book. This is the book, Bible, okay, that teaches us about God's real plan for us, this personal relationship, face-to-face, and owned by God. He says our names will be written on his forehead. That's a sign that indicates ownership. We are his. The rebel without a clue wants autonomy. The fool wants a one-world government uh, where, you know, we don't want God over us. We think, you know, if we can get, you know, all these things, we can have this, you know, utopia ourselves on this planet. Listen, that's not going to happen. Now, we've, as we've walked through the book of Revelation, we've seen that is the end-time plan of the enemy, and that will bring about the Antichrist, that globalism, that one world thing. I'm reading a book right now, uh, The Deeper State, kind of interesting book. It starts out here. It says, globalization is more than a process of corporate expansion, free trade, and instant communications. It is also about a radical ideology, a humanist religion, an effort to replace national sovereignty with global governance and deliver great wealth to the few elite. It is empowered by progressivism and other nefarious societal engines like Marxism, communism, that promises utopia but results in massive vulnerabilities for most people and robs those citizens of their basic freedoms. Kind of an inner, he brings in both the political and religious aspects of that whole f- focus on globalism. No, we only want God to be our sovereign. Okay? That's the only thing. And this rebellion against God, we say, I don't need God. I just want to live my life on my own. Okay? That is foolish. The wise person desires the rule of God. Because in God's plan also, there's no more darkness. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Uh, Patterson, in his commentary, he speaks of this. He says, there will be no more night. 
brings to memory that men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil, John 3.19. However, evil deeds are no longer a part of the heavenly scene, and so there is no love of darkness and no presence of darkness. The Lord God replaces all other light givers as the supreme light giver. With God around, it's always going to be light. It's going to be beautiful. That's, by the way, great for golf. Finally, last part of verse 5, we reign forever under God. Did you see how it ends? And they will reign forever and ever. The people of God will reign, not over each other. So where do we reign? Well, this harkens back, once again, back to Genesis. Back to Genesis 1.28, God's original plan for creation. Look what he says here. Genesis 1.28 God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the seas and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Proper dominion uses and takes care of the planet. We talked about that last week. Responsibility and achievement. Is going to be, we're going to be discovering new things all the time as we work the planet. Proper dominion is under God's leadership. God is the sovereign. We are under him. Atheism is evil. Even the supposed good atheists are evil because they have rebelled against the rightful place of God being the king, God being the leader. Uh, interesting passage, 1 Chronicles 17, 7. We don't have to turn to that because I'm getting a little late here, but 1 Chronicles 17, 7 speaks of David when he was made king, okay? Now, normally the word king is melech in the Hebrew, and but in this particular passage, it uses a different word, nagid, instead of melech, Uh, for him as king because he's not the king. God is the king. And he is under him, ruling, just like us, under him, ruling. That's God's plan. We're always to be second. Watch this video. We all know where our blessings come from. And for me, that's from God. And and no matter how many fans come out or or 100,000 people are cheering, I know that my strength and my ability is from Him. I never really thought my struggles were something that it was just on me. I always felt like um, I had a a hard heart towards God and just just resisted it in every way you could. all the failures and all the tough times growing up and a single parent home and, and just a, a rough childhood, all those things led me to resist God. And, and finally, when I opened my heart to Him and I, I met my wife, that was really when I knew that God had a plan for me and that He um, He was what I needed. Really, God just he didn't resist me. He, he took me in His arms and just showed me what life is all about and, and really what I'm here to, on earth to do, and that's to live for Him. Every decision I make, I try to make it for God and, and, and use the right judgment to, to do so. 
obviously I, I make mistakes. I still fail every day, but I know through Him and uh, His grace that I can have everlasting life. And I, um, I walk with Him every day. I talk to Him. It's, it's like He's my friend. Well, my personal relationship with Jesus is is personal. That's exactly what it is. I mean, uh, God's blessed me in so many ways, and my family. And I've just learned so much with Him. And, having life without him and, and really resisting him in my life. And now to a point in my life where he's so involved in it, everything I do is that relationship with him. That's what my life's about. And I really want to spread the word of Jesus and, and know the impact that he has. So without Jesus, I'm nobody. I'm definitely humbled by him and, and my relationship with him. I'm Jason Witten, and I am second. Love hearing people's testimonies. We are second. The grand plan of God from the beginning to the end is a garden where we live, work, play, and serve the great and glorious creator of the universe together. Paradise. Are you coming? Let's pray. Father, we see this beautiful picture painted at the end of the Bible of your grand design and what's surely to come. We long for that day. We ask you to help us until that day comes to live for you, that we would be faithful, we would not waste our lives, but instead, during this time, during this time of suffering, during this time of pain, during this in between times, we can experience your life as much as possible, but that we would share that life with others and bring as many people into the kingdom as possible so that they will experience this garden in the end. Help us to get our focus right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our God.